Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of the Year of Plenty podcast, the show for all things real food and the processes that bring it to the table. As always, I'm your host Poldy Whelan and today we have a very special episode. Not only is this episode an awesome conversation with an extremely knowledgeable plant forager, but on top of that, I will also be announcing the winner of the Kitchen Cleaver giveaway. So definitely stick around until the end of the episode and maybe you'll find out if you are the lucky winner. But first things first, let's talk quickly about today's conversation. In this episode, like I said, I'm talking to my friend Kyle Chamberlain. I met Kyle during my time out in Washington State over the summer in 2020, and I was immediately fascinated by the guy. He's been foraging plants and studying ethnobotany basically his entire life, and he knows so much about primitive survival skills as well. His interests in rediscovering our human niche in nature runs deep, and he knows a lot about our primitive past. Kyle has also worked together with some really well-known botanists like Tom Alpel, who wrote the book Botany in a Day, which is a field guide used by people all around the U.S. today. And I also want to mention that Kyle is a true conservationist at heart, and he even does land management services out west. So if you need some help managing your land, make sure to check out his website, which is www.resiliencelandcare.wordpress.com. And on that website, he even has a really awesome blog in which he goes over all sorts of topics surrounding foraging, natural living, and habitat restoration. All right, so let's go over some topics that we discussed during this conversation. So first, we start out by talking about Cal's journey into the world of plants. We discuss various wild edible plants, especially berries, and we even get into some of those wild plants that can come really in handy for hunters that are out there on, let's say, a backcountry hunt. Like I said earlier, Kyle is super into ethnobotany, so we get into that, and we also get into how people have processed wild plants into food throughout history. Then we get into a concept that I feel very strongly about, which is land stewardship and cultivating wild food sustainably. And finally, we get into this crazy topic of harvesting roadkill animals, which is something Kyle has done a lot. I've done it a couple times, but it's something I'm trying to get better at because, you know, there's a lot of free meat out there, especially in the winter. And I think that there are a lot of roadkill animals, you know, that are just wasted and they could be picked up by someone who knows what they're doing and processing the food. As always, this is the Year of Plenty podcast. If you enjoy it, smash that subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen. Make sure to leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts, and you can even support it by making a small donation on Patreon with the link in the podcast description. If you don't know, Patreon allows you to help me create the show with donations as little as $2 a month. And the cool thing is, it's all based on the patronage system that was very popular during ancient times. Back then, kings and queens alike used the patronage system to take creatives under their wing and support them in exchange for value. So if you do get value from this podcast, please consider sharing the episodes with your friends and family. And you can just simply connect with me on Instagram, which is at poldiwieland, at P-O-L-D-I-W-I-E-L-A-N-D. Okay, that's it. Don't forget to stick around until the end of the episode to hear who won the hand-forged kitchen cleaver. Let's get started. Get ready to learn from Kyle Chamberlain. All right, Kyle, how's it going, man? 
Hey, going all right. Another day in paradise. That's right. Uh, I've been out here in beautiful Washington State for two months now, coming to an end. And uh, I'm happy I met you and that you agreed to do a podcast episode because you are a wealth of knowledge, man, when it comes to foraging and botany and whatnot. But uh, before we get into all of that, we're sitting right now. You took me out to this beautiful spot here on the Columbia River, right? This is? Yes. Is this Lake Roosevelt or what, what, what part of this is this? Well, it, it was named Lake Roosevelt, but for me, that's a bit of a misnomer because it's a reservoir. It's, it's the backwater of a mega dam. Grand Coulee Dam, and we're actually sitting above what was once Kettle Falls, the the second most important salmon fishery on the Columbia River system. Uh, but as you can see, it's it's all flat water now. Yeah, I mean, you I think you told me that there's evidence that people have inhabited this area for over nine thousand years, something like that. Uh, you know. I think people fish for salmon here until the completion of the dam in the mid-40s. And, uh, you know, some some of that archaeological evidence is, is actually um, botany-based. So I can't recall just how many thousand years old um, these particular pieces of evidence were, but uh, there are uh, wild hyacinth uh, root fibers present in, in layers of the soil that are dated to 9,000, not 9,000, but several thousand years ago. That's so crazy to me, you know, to think about that we're in this area that people used to utilize for a really long time and inhabit. So, you know, I had the pleasure of following you around during one of your foraging courses a couple of days ago, and I'm happy I did. Because uh, I learned a ton about some of the wild edible plants here in the um, North Pacific Northwest, and you know, out here in the West, that different plants than we have out in the Midwest where I'm from. So that was really awesome. And actually, before I forget, you know, one of the iconic plants of this region is probably the huckleberries, right? More Idaho. I mean, it's like the plant of Idaho, I believe. Yeah, I mean, all over the Northwest, there are huckleberry species. Well, I before we forget, I actually got to just remember, thank God, I brought us some seltzers, some huckleberry <laughs> seltzers. <laughs> There's one on this side. Made, made in Spokane. Have you, have you had these before? No. So it's like a white claw, I guess, but uh, it's called Day Fade. <laughs> huckleberry heart seltzer. And uh, yeah, from Spokane, which is like two hours from here. Something like that? You want one? Yeah, spent a lot of my childhood in Spokane. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to assume these were made with uh, regional huckleberries, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know where else they'd get them. I'm curious how this tastes. That works. Not bad. Not super strong flavor, like flavor-wise, but I like it. I can definitely taste the hucks. Yeah. I, f- I figured this would be fitting for uh, for a talk about the plants along this uh, in this region. So this was really my first time going out with someone, um, you know, who really understands or has a deep understanding of their regional botany. Um, you know, I've been going out foraging a lot with just based on books that I see or videos or with friends that have some idea of um, of the region. 
but never with anyone like you, you know, who's really been studying the plants for a long time. And it was crazy to see how many plants are really edible. You know, just the first day during this course, we were going on, on the Human Nature Hunting School's property, and I think you pointed out like 20 or 30 different plants just in that one day. And uh, just such so much variety. I mean, you're, I think you're, you said your goal was to introduce us to like 300 plants or something like that. <laughs> well, that would be a noble goal because uh, your average uh, ape uses two to 300 plant species for food. Um, I'm not sure that anyone uh, re retained that many plants. And actually, um, locally on, on, on the plateau, indigenous peoples were using more like 135 uh, plants for food. How the heck can these apes remember all that? That's just like my question. <laughs> uh, well, well, there's the question, do they need to remember it in a kind of cognitive way or... Are there kind of patterns embedded in the environment itself that, that they can relate to and pick up on? Yeah, that's probably it. But no doubt, uh, our primate ancestors are more intelligent than we give them credit for. So you're saying that people around here have 135, are used to 135 different plants? Yeah, not because they weren't ingenious, but because um, we're, we're kind of on a, a cold step. Uh, it's not the most biologically diverse region in the world. Um, you know, in interestingly enough, there are, uh, there are a lot of different cultures here that use the same plants in, in very different ways. And, and that's always interesting to me to read about. How, what elevation are we at here? Do you know, roughly? Uh, I mean, my place is at 1,700. Uh, we're probably a few hundred feet lower here on the river. Okay. Well, let's back up for a bit. I want to hear about how you got obsessed with all of this. How and when did your interest for wild edible plants and ethnobotany and all that start? Hmm. Well, my dad introduced me to the outdoors. He used to like to take me uh, fly fishing at, at lakes all around the state. And um, I was always kind of a contrarian and kind of a kind of a curmudgeon in a way, even as a child where where i I didn't like school i I wanted out of society i I was always really critical of the institutions that I felt stuck in, and so when I found Larry Olson's outdoor survival skills on my father's bookshelf. I was, I was pretty entranced. And I remember being particularly interested in the, the deadfalls and snares illustrated in that book. I think um, the ingenuity there was, just, just boggled my mind. I, I really liked the, the gadgetry of, of those traps, and yet they were made with, with Stone Age materials. And I, I continue, continue to be fascinated with them. Um, the ingenuity around plant materials and, and animal materials uh, used by our ancestors and our predecessors. Um, I uh, was contacted by this native dude not long ago. He was reviving the tradition of building uh, 
white pine bark canoes, which are a fantastic and ingenious piece of plant technology. uh, The bulk of that canoe's skin is made of white pine bark, but there are a lot of other parts and pieces that go into it, and they're they're made like of many ingenious plant materials. Uh, one of those materials that he needed is bitter cherry bark, which has this marvelous elastic quality, and it's when it's cut spirally, uh, it can be used almost like electrical tape, and it's what's used to lash the parts of a traditional white pine bark canoe together and the the keen observation and the the experimentation it must have taken to devise these techniques it really inspires me and i'm i'm really thrilled whenever i can learn or, or be a part of processes like that and when did your uh, interest in wild spo- uh, wild food specifically start you know i know you you told me during the course that you always wanted to be a hunter gatherer Do you have like a first memory of you going out there and trying a wild food? I don't have a a memory of the first wild food I tried. It would have kind of blurred into the the plants that kids taught me to eat on the playground and stuff like that. We were always eating dandelions and honeysuckle and things like that. Um, But, um... I remember in school, I would, I would put a botany books inside of my textbooks and pretend to be reading. Oh no way! Yeah, the text in school. Um, I got really into it. I, I printed out uh, a species list for a wildlife area where I did some of my early survival treks, and I was really proud of myself for studying every species on that list. There were hundreds. There's probably over a thousand species on that list. I would look them up and see if they were edible. And uh, I highlighted the list and hung it up on my bedroom wall and annotated it. Um, I had little symbols for which ones produced edible fruit and which ones produced roots and greens. And uh, that's kind of how I went about it. I, I was always really systematic about wanting to know what was out there and and what could help me maintain my separation from society. <laughs> well, I think it's a good idea to be systematic, um, just given the fact that there are poisonous plants out there. And, you know, if, you, if you're trying to learn a thousand different plants, you got to have some sort of system and be a little organized to, to you know, compartmentalize it into your, into your brain, I guess, into your memory. So, um, who were some of your childhood heroes that kind of influenced your passion uh, for botany? You just mentioned Larry Olson. Uh, is there anyone else that really uh, you were burning for reading their material when you were younger? Yeah, Larry Olson's work definitely reached me. Um, it's also very inspired by by Jim Riggs, who who I later met at the the Glass Buttes Nap Inn. Uh, passed away not long ago. Oh no! Um, and and I was I was also inspired by by Tom Elpel, who um, I also met later in my life, and, and uh, continue to 
to have a relationship with. And Tom Elpolo and I uh, have taught courses. We've done a a month-long botany intensive. That was something. How cool is that when you can, you know, you read about someone as a child and you follow your passion and then you get to meet the person and they mentor you and that's got to be so fun. For sure. And I think discovering that there was a community around wild food and primitive skills was was a turning point for me in which I was no longer studying with the intent of uh, dropping out of society and, and more interested in, in being part of, of this community that I respected and and contributing to it. How big would you say the foraging community is these days? I mean, I feel like more and more people are getting into it, but the people that really understand their stuff, it's probably hard to gauge, huh? But It would be hard to gauge. I mean, where I live, nearly everyone gathers huckleberries and morels. That's that's um, kind of part and parcel to being uh, a northeastern Washington human. Um, and I don't know. I, I have a, a small inner circle of, of people I call eco dorks <laughs> who are just kind of radical in their their interest and in kind of learning everything and every anything about the biology of of wild food and. Uh, There's a lot of space in between. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely important um, to find that community and, you know, other people to learn from and talk about wild food. I think that really speeds up the learning process. At least it has been doing that for me. So I actually read on your website that you tried to live as a hunter-gatherer for a month in the high desert foothills <laughs> of the Cascades when you were 17. <laughs> What the heck was that experience like? Did you ever do that? Yeah, I'd, I'd been doing weekend survival treks, and for for a lack of a better word, I mean this is kind of a a contrived survival scenario where where I would limit uh, what what gear and food I would bring out, and kind of test myself and a, attempt to make a living as as a as a hunter gatherer. Um. And that, that trip when I was 17, that, that month-long trip, when I think about it now, I, I think about the mistakes I made and everything I didn't know. Um, I was subsisting almost entirely on um, yapa roots, service berries, uh, the occasional rattlesnake, Did you uh, bring trout. food in at all? I did bring like a small bag of rice and some power bars. Okay. Um, and, and that illustrates some really basic nutrition that I didn't understand because I think looking back, if, if I wanted to supplement my diet with anything, it should have been fat. And that was the, the ingredient I was missing. And, and that lack of fat caused me to lose a lot of weight, which was kind of terrifying because I was I was never a, a very heavy guy to begin with. I mean, my eyes sunk into my head. Um, I lost my ass. Um, and it kind of scared my parents. So I met my parents who came out via boat <laughs> mid-trip and they insisted I come back. And, and no I, way. I didn't, I didn't put up too much of a fight. 
that was also my first experience with prolonged solitude. And I have mixed feelings about that as well. Um, It was influential for me in a way that I think a lot of people would call spiritual. Um, But there were also kind of harmful and destructive elements, I think. In what way? Um, I don't know that the human mind ought to chew on itself for that long in isolation. Yeah, that's a good point, right? It's something I think a lot of people are feeling now with this whole corona pandemic <laughs> even. You know, just being locked at home. Oh, yeah, but yet we're chomping at the bit to watch this alone television show yeah. where, you know, a lot of people I know, actually, um, kind of friends of friends, are are participating in this, this television spectacle. It's, it's all about uh, enduring isolation. And I suppose that that has more to do with... Um, the status quo and how we feel about our role in kind of everyday contemporary culture than it does about the past or any sort of ancestral reality. It's got to be hard, yeah, to just be by yourself and with your own thoughts. I mean, at least you probably distracted yourself a good amount with looking for food. Yeah, I mean... I I was immersed in such an overwhelming sensory experience constantly that when I came back to the developed world, um, it all seemed to kind of drone on. It was very quiet. And it was almost as if the volume had been turned down. <laughs> to borrow a line from Fight Club, it, it post, post-traumatic... Uh, survival trek experience that's crazy <laughs> so he said you you ate for meat you ate a uh, trout and rattlesnake did the rattlesnake have much fat on it uh, rattlesnakes are actually quite fatty and and i should say that that uh it, it wouldn't really be ethical to eat a rattlesnake at any time except during a dire survival situation um, rattlesnakes are important apex predators there aren't very many of them and uh, they help control rodents. They're beautiful animals. So what did you do for uh, water out there? Um, I I kind of took the lead of, of Tom Elpel in this and chose to just use wild water as I found it. I mean, I'm, I may be pickier in my environment than he is in Montana where you can drink, drink out of large streams. I, I always tried to track down... Um, springs like points where water was coming right out of the earth yeah it makes a lot of sense giardy and all that but you're, you're you must have a gut of steel now <laughs> all the microbiome that you must have gotten from that experience i'm sure you've drank more spring water since then <laughs> yeah i mean my home water system is untreated water that's got a lot of exposure to the terrestrial environment, including animal scat, so forth. That's so cool. To think about. <laughs> well, it's not without risks. I mean, I've I've suffered from devastating giardia before. Really? Where, yeah, I, I was 
I was, um, you know, shitting my brains out and, and got a hotel just so I could stay on the toilet and treated myself in, in kind of this desperate stoic way where I just took a lot of garlic and eventually resorted to, um, to bleach. I just, <laughs> I, I ingested some drops of bleach. No. Oh my God. That's insane. But, but this is while working for uh, a wilderness therapy company where our company policy was to treat water with bleach. Okay. Which, which is no different from the chlorine in the municipal water supply. Um, and I was, I was refusing to do that. I was, I was kind of like violating companies policy and, and drinking right out of the cattle troughs and cattle ponds that, that, uh, we were normally treating it's, a, as an experiment. That's and, so wild to think about. <laughs> I've never had Giardia. I've just heard it's really bad, like horrible experience. Yeah. Pathogens and parasites are natural. Yeah. They are a risk. That is true. So at this point in your life, what is your approach to wild food? You know, after all this experience that you've gotten? Um, right now, my approach to wild food is, is, is somewhere between very utilitarian, where I want to save money and I want to, you know, acquire healthy food that I can't necessarily afford at the grocery store. And there's also a, a kind of uh, scientific fascination where I want to learn more about the foods I can eat and push the envelope with wild food culture, kind of ex expand uh, what's known and, and, and uh, I don't know, just, just experiment with little known species and, and little known preparation methods and uh, kind of integrate um, kind of practices gleaned from a study of global ethnobotany into in what I'm doing at home. Uh, and then there's also a kind of uh, Epicurean element where I want my life to be kind of fancy and tasty. And so I've, I've been focusing also on uh, stylish elements of wild food and, and appealing elements of wild food and, and really tracking down um, what kinds of wild flavors I can concoct. You should uh, look at the website foragerschef.com for that one. Alan Burgo, he's from Minnesota. I interviewed him on the podcast recently. And, you know, he's he's a chef and he's approaching wild food from that lens and perspective. And he's got amazing recipes out there. But I uh, I know you spend a lot of your time learning about the most calorie-rich edible plants, right? That was kind of the beginning, you said? Yeah. Yeah, that's a legacy of, of my interest in escaping society where I wanted the, the most straightforward way to provide for myself um, off the grid, you know. And that's, that's why in, in the course we made pemmican, which is this fantastic uh, indigenous food. It's, it was also a uh, kind of a commercial staple of the fur trade. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, trappers' rations were measured in pounds of pemmican. Whoa, that's awesome! And, and there, there was um, there was kind of a a native-based uh, pemmican industry where where there was a lot of fat rendered on the plains, and that would get shipped all over the country uh, to feed trappers. That's very interesting thing to think about, like that. I mean, it makes sense because it's such an energy-rich food that they were probably craving out there. You know, if you're a trapper back then, you're probably, you know, I mean, you're basically living a pretty hunter-gatherer lifestyle. I would, I would assume. Um, at least I've heard about that in the mountain men. You know, that they were just living out there in the mountains, exploring and and trapping and whatnot. And the pemmican, it's got a ton of fat. It's got the ground jerky, so it's got your protein source. And then usually, traditionally, you said it's uh, dried berries in there as well, right? So you have a little bit of carbohydrates as well and vitamins and minerals and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty well-rounded macronutrient source. Um, and then there are a lot of modern takes on pemmicans. You can include nuts if you like and season it. Um, I'm fascinated with a pemmican recipe I heard of, I think it's it's a it's a plains culture recipe where you use bone marrow for the fat and you and you season it with uh, choked cherry juice. <laughs> so this would be probably a raw bone marrow that they use. I'm guessing because it's you know unless they rendered it. Well, it's all, all it's all raw, but it's 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 still. Like rendering isn't necessarily a cooking process; it's, it's just melting. It's, it's more like it's a removal up, of improved impurities, breaking up the cell walls and whatnot. Yeah. So, you know, looking at calorie-rich edible plants, what categories of plants should we be looking for to get kind of a, a maximum calorie? If you really just need to fuel your body, it would be really important to learn root vegetables. Um, that's where the bulk of carbohydrates available to us in a natural perennial ecosystem are stored. It's in the, in the roots of forbs. And I've actually been to environments in this bioregion where the majority of, of, of the underground biomass of the Forbes is, is edible with, with a few exceptions. Um, it's, it's also worth noting that the use of underground storage organs, USOs, USOs as anthropologists like to call them, paleoanthropologists, uh, likely played a, a, a very important role in human evolution. Um, so those are important. And, and, you know, fruits, fruits are also an important source of calories. Although if, if you're going to make fruits a staple, you, you've got to learn how to, how to prepare them so that they're, uh, they're palatable in large quantity quantities and good for your body. Uh, when we made, uh, service berries, you know, you, you can eat handfuls of service berries, um, but you know, if you're going to try to live on them, uh, eat eat significant quantities of quantities of them day in and day out, 
then it it behooves you to mash and dry them. And we made service berry cakes. Which were amazing. I mean, that was one of the highlights for me. I was surprised at how well they turned out. Pretty easy. Pretty easy to make a high-quality staple food product by just mashing and drying. So we mashed, uh, kind of sculpted them into hamburger-like patties and then dried them in the sun. And so it's the service berries. Those are new to me. And if there's one plant, one wild edible, that is the highlight of my trip here in the Pacific Northwest, it's service berries. Um, so abundant. I mean, there's bushes everywhere. And um, I, I'm, you know, they have such a curious, good flavor, but they're not too sweet. And I think you pointed this out. They really have the, the seeds when you, bite on them they have that marzipan almondy flavor and uh i think you you posted on facebook the other day actually what 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 uh um causes that flavor in there do you oh, want yeah, to speak on that a little bit hydrogen cyanide yeah cyanide <laughs> <laughs> yeah amygdalin a compound common to many rose family fruits uh, breaks down into hydrogen cyanide, which, which is potentially harmful if, if you don't process uh, what you're eating correctly. And, and this includes almonds and a lot of very common uh, grocery store foods. Uh, it can be harmful, but, but it is also the source of their fantastic flavor. And uh, according to some... I'm a little behind on on the literature. These these are important um, uh, phytochemicals. Mm. They have health benefits. So, you know, service berries. Uh, also, you said though by drying them, I believe some of that, um, you know, some of those compounds volatilize. I mean, what's the right word for that? Yeah, they they, they kind of volatilize or off gas. Just. Uh, any exposure to the air will actually perform this this important step in, in, in processing. So cooking or drying or macerating, all of these things help to make the food more healthful. And we sun-dried these um, on a rooftop for a couple of days, probably like th- two, two, three days. And they were amazing. Actually, so these are also called June berries, right? Because they're one of the early fruits, early berries that uh that ripen in the Yeah, summer. yeah. So service berries are in the genus Amelanchier, and they're they're a big deal in the northwest, but uh, there are service berry species all over the northern hemisphere, including Europe and Asia. Um, in the Midwest, they're called June berries. And there are uh, a handful of species there. There's a Amelanchier arborea, the, the tree species, which, which grows quite tall. Um, and there, there are most, most relevant to kind of the way I approach it, uh, there are suckering and non-suckering service berries. And... Um, the the domesticated ones that the the Canadians bred, uh, they were of the suckering type, so they're easy to propagate. 
And most of the amelanchier, all the folia I observe locally are, are not suckering. In other words, they they don't spread from creeping roots. Mm. Um, but I, I observe the occasional suckering individual, and I wonder if if it's got um, genes from the the midwestern species Stolonifera. Stranger things have happened. Yeah. Well, I want to get into berries a little more in a bit here, but um, if you had like a couple, you know, of your favorite calorie-rich wild plants, what would you, what would you choose? Yeah, if I were selecting from from native calorie-rich plants, then service berries would be there. Um, lately, I would probably also include hackberries, which are not very popular or well-known. Hackberries? Hackberries. So I spent um, part of last winter in Hell's Canyon, uh, with with a friend, and we were experimenting with eating hackberries. And hackberries have a very thin flesh over a large seed. Um, but the, but the seed is nutritious. And to prepare hackberries properly, you you grind them, seed and all, and they're they're very simple and sweet. When uh, we we actually uh, ob- obtained a, a coffee grinder that we could use from an inverter in, in my truck. And that turned out to be a pretty good way to collect and process uh, hackberries, which, which are obtained in the winter. They, they ripen in the fall and they persist on the bushes into the winter, which is not something that you'd expect in the cold parts of the inland Northwest. That's super interesting. Yeah, that usually I feel like berries you don't don't do that. So I mean, while while we're on this topic of berries, why don't we just continue on for a bit? Um, you know, I've been doing this low carb diet for a while, and usually I stay away from commercial fruits. But there's something about berry picking that I love. It's like a meditation, and I I can't get enough of freaking wild berries. Um, how significant were berries to indigenous cultures around the U.S.? I mean, you said they're really calorie-rich food. They have a lot of car. I mean, good amount of carbohydrates if you collect a lot. Yeah, it kind of varies from species to species, and and I think berries. The, the term berries is a very particular botanical term that, that's applied uh, broadly by by lay people to include a lot of things which aren't technically berries. Uh, I, I kind of re- refer to them generally as as, as fruits. Uh, but uh, and so some of them are more calorie dense than others. Uh, service berries seem to contain kind of kind of simple as well as more complex carbohydrates. They're they're pretty heavy hitting, whereas um, huckleberries likely contain mostly simple sugars, vitamin C, and a lot of juice. So it really depends on what we're talking about, uh, how important they were. I, I think fruit is really psychologically important to people. Um, I mean, it's like the dessert of nature, right? Yeah. I mean, sugar lifts moods. Uh, these, these are desserts. These are the things that, that people uh, relish. And 
I read an account of early Christian missionaries who, who really thought that they had successfully made uh, good Christians out of uh, native people, but but come huckleberry season, they refused to go to church. They they would go into the mountains and collect huckleberries, uh, even though they were not uh, strict hunter-gatherers at that point. They weren't needing the huckleberries to survive. It, it was such a psychological high for them to, to go into the mountains and do this. And it's a fantastic time of year to be in the mountains and to, to interact with the montane environment. And it's it's cool and and there's all this delicious fruit that makes people happy. I mean, it is addicting. The whole, like I was saying, it's a meditation. I, I could just go out there and just keep picking those tiny berries. I love it. So, you know, in the past when I've collected wild berries, I either freeze them uh, or I eat them fresh. What are your, some of your favorite ways of processing them? We mentioned air drying or sun drying. Are there any other ways you like to process berries in general? Hmm. I, I live without electricity, so freezing um, and refrigeration aren't much of an option for me. Um, and I'm, I'm also kind of on the fence about canning, where I recognize that canning is a fantastic way to preserve food. It's, it's relatively low-tech, um, but it's also an industrial process. Um, so I've been drawn to drying mostly. And, and one thing I haven't experimented with that I would like to, and it's, it's a traditional um, huckleberry preserving method, it's, is to smoke the fruit. Ooh. Actually smoke the huckleberries dry. I like the sound of that. Yeah, and this, this has been found to uh, increase the amount of vitamin C available in the really? product. Yeah. So what would you, you'd probably cold smoke them? And not, you know, because if you hot smoke them, I'm guessing they'd cook somehow. Yeah, well, as, as a general rule with, with smoking, in the case of preserving food, you you want the smoke to be cool. You're definitely not wanting to cook whatever you're preserving. Yeah, that's a good point. And there, there are ways to set up fire pits and chimneys and so forth to to direct cool smoke at whatever you're doing. and And... What I'm able to glean about traditional processes for making jerky is is kind of an indirect smoking in the shade. Mm. So the smoke was there largely to deter insects, um, but it also helped take the dew point down, and the, and the flavor was nice. And um, locally, they like to use willow. Huh, that's super interesting. So, yeah, I mean, drying, you know, we talked about the service berry cakes. Um, now, service berries, from what I learned from you, lend themselves more to that than something like a huckleberry or blueberry because they're not as juicy. They have more of like a, a lot more flesh to them. Yeah, huckleberries seem to contain some pectins, which help fruits adhere. Um, or service berries do? Service berries, Yes, whereas huckleberries are, are, are juicier and tartar, and um, they they wouldn't hold together very well as a cake. Um, but but also ex- extremely sugary fruits will also set up. Like I was um, drying some cherry leather recently, and and although that hasn't got a lot for pectins, it's 
that sugar kind of sets up as a syrup as things dry. And that's, that's a good way to hold together a product too. So how do you go about making a fruit leather versus like a cake? Because the cake was pretty simple, you know, we just mashed them up and formed these, like you said, burger patties. Yeah. Well, a cake can include a lot of skins and seeds. It it doesn't have to be homogenous, whereas a, a fruit leather is, is usually made out of a, a bit more refined and filtered product. Um, when I made my cherry leather, I was using what's called a Foley food mill. It's, it's a machine, kind of a, a low-tech uh, hand tool used to remove seeds from things like tomatoes. Anyway, it's got this paddle that you kind of crank around over a sieve, and it forces um, the cherry pulp through the holes, and and that way you're able to remove the seeds and and most of the skin, and uh, you get a pretty nice product for fruit leather. Um, It's not my favorite way to do it. You know, when I was a kid, my, my grandmother had a device um, the name of them slips my mind right now, but I'd like to invest in one. It's It's got kind of a corkscrew in the same way a, a meat grinder or grain grinder has that it kind of forces the pulp through a screen. And, uh, you know, that's, that's also an industrial technology, but it's fairly cheap. You can use it for a lifetime. And not a bad way to to really exponentially kind of up your game in in terms of putting food away. Hmm. I mean, you know, berries tend to have, or at least uh, the raspberries I've found, tend to have little worms in them. And I think (laughs) that might turn some people off. Uh, It kind of turned me off at the beginning, I got to say. Then I just froze them and I wasn't worried about it anymore. You know, talking to you and just going around with you the last couple of days, I've just been shoving service berries into my mouth, not thinking about that at all. Are you worried about these worms ever getting any sort of, you know, insects in there? No. Uh, I mean that the worms that are in fruits are specialist fruit eaters. They rely on fruit for their life processes. They're not parasites or anything. They're, they're not going to harm you. Um, they're not likely to be toxic either. Um, it's, I don't know. For, for me, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of wild sweet cherries in this valley, and I really like to use those, and, and they're frequently wormy. If, if you were to open up every one you ate, you'd probably find a worm and um, around half of them. Uh, with, with exceptions, there are tart varieties that don't get the worms as bad. Um, you look at, at the alternative, and, and the alternatives are kind of nightmarish. I mean, we're talking about, even in an organic situation, uh, organic farmers are using a designer virus to spray onto the cherries. Uh, to infect the insects that uh, put put the worms in the cherries, and when the when the rubber hits the road, it's 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 like I'd rather address my own squeamishness than order a designer virus 
from a catalog. <laughs> I like that. To spray on my trees. Well said. I or, think. or you know, what one one option we were looking at in an orchard that I worked for was was a giant bug zapper. Uh, that's a sort of insect, or well, you're familiar with household bug zappers. Oh, bugs. That, that okay, yeah, kill yeah. mosquitoes and moths on your porch. Oh my god, well, they were setting one out there. Well, well. Well, we were looking at this like, do we want an orchard scale bug zapper that would kill every moth <laughs> over over five acres? It's like that's not acceptable. Like that's the devastation of an entire insect community for a single crop. Yeah, right. Like who says you're just gonna get the harmful insects? You're probably gonna get all these pollinators too and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I know you're a huge fan of ethnobotany, which is basically a field of study that is trying to understand the relationship between people and how to use plants throughout time, right? Yes. Well, why might it be a good idea to learn about the uh, ethnobotanical stories of your region if you're a forager? I, I have a paradoxical philosophy about ethnobotany. So ethnobotany is is how cultures relate to plants it's it's tremendously important in one way to learn how uh, other cultures relate with the plants that you might be living near um, it's it's very instructive it, it it shows you like the possibilities for life basically our lifestyles are built around the way we use our natural resources and the more examples we have of how to structure our lives, the more freedom we have with our lifestyles. Um, so that's, that's tremendously important. Um, you've got to be careful when uh, kind, of, kind of borrowing or, or often just, just kind of uh, assuming use of uh, knowledge of other cultures. Because the, the the political situation is that uh, people like me are associated with a culture that that devastated the cultures we have most to learn from about plants, the, the indigenous people of North America. Um, and so I think it's important to to blend a healthy respect for ethnobotany with a kind of personal responsibility about forging our own relationship with wild plants and you can use other cultures processes as an as an inspiration or a, or a basis for this but 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 ultimately we kind of need timely r ways to relate with these species particularly since uh we live in devastated landscapes like this river system we're looking at now or like uh, the upland forests that we're surrounded by, which, which are just in unprecedented ecological upheaval due to fire suppression and parcelization. So I wrote an article called The Botany of Nothing, Inspired by Tom Elpel's uh, "The Art of Nothing," which which proposes 
uh, an acultural approach to plants, which which is to say, if if you could s- strip strip your relationship with plants free of any and all cultural baggage, what would that look like? What is what is your raw biological relationship to a plant? Like what like what do we inherit just by being primates on planet Earth? And it's it's kind of an absurd thought experiment in a way. Um, but but the article touches on the apricots of Hell's Canyon, which dry themselves. They dry themselves on the trees or um, on the stones below the trees. And so they're, they're an example of preservation without any cultural in- intervention whatsoever. If, if you are really uh, an ogre <laughs> without any culture, you could store... Uh, naturally dried apricots in a hollow tree limb and kind of be uh, you and the squirrels would be a kind of cultureless uh, food user. And I, I think that's interesting. Like that's that's also a basis from which we can evolve a relationship with plants to think about uh, what's what's necessary, what's What's uh? What are the basics here? Be- because because many cultures' ways of relating with plants are very sophisticated and very distinct, and so adapted to the particulars of the cultural situation that they may not apply outside a particular culture. I mean, the Japanese dry persimmons under their roof eaves. Their, their roof eaves are designed a particular way uh, to hold the persimmons, and and it that method is is part of a, a whole cultural system that's that's bigger than the people or the persimmons, and so a lot of people in my situation would be hard pressed to say they had any culture whatsoever. And uh, I think we need to explore the opportunities and the pitfalls in that. So for you, it's really about learning how other cultures have, have used it and making sure to respect that. Yes. And, and one way to respect other cultures is to acknowledge that their relationship with the living world is their relationship and that Ours can be different, and we can do things differently and still respect one another. Well, one thing I do love about the course you you um, instructed was that you did bring so much botanical and ethnobotanical knowledge uh, to the table. And, you know, it, what was most fascinating to me, to be honest, was really your knowledge about processing all these plants and making them into something edible, and then also the different ways of preserving the foods. I just, for some reason, I love hearing about how people did that in the past. Um, so maybe we can dive into the processing and preservation a little bit more. Uh, why was processing so important to people, and, and what are some of your favorite examples of how they processed wild foods? I worked on orchards uh, all last year. I've worked on orchards a lot of my life, at least seasonally. And 
Orchards are very pampered plant communities. They're they're sprayed, they're pruned, they're they're manicured. And they have to be if if they're going to persist as a food system because they've lost their their genetic v- diversity and and their evolved resilience and then the breadth of their gene pool so wild foods are different so wild foods have resilience they have genetic diversity um but you can't necessarily eat them out of hand in the same way that you can eat a red delicious apple um or, or, or perhaps you can only if, if you were to eat uh, a, a significant quantity, you'd make yourself sick. You get gas, um, ingest too much amygdalin in your cherries, and you have the runs. That sort of thing. So, if we want to invest in a wild landscape, we need to learn how to process our food. That's how we keep the landscape wild is, is by learning how to use the products that, that nature offers. Mm. Um, that's kind of counterintuitive for some people. I mean, there are, there are a lot of raw foodists out there who feel that that's a more natural uh, diet. But when we look at hunter-gatherer cultures around the world, we find a lot of food processing. It's, it's not industrial conveyor belt uh food chemistry food processing it's it's like it's like simple simple processes drying maceration uh cooking um, those processes are really important and they give us a lot of flexibility in what we can eat um, you know we uh we touched on some plants in my course some of which you must cook before eating they would be poisonous otherwise, or, you know, anti-nutrient. So that's that's a good word to learn if you're getting into foraging, is, is that plants don't necessarily want to be eaten. They, they've got a host of defenses. And anti-nutrients are one of them. Tannins are an anti-nutrient. Uh, tannins are a fa- famous constituent of acorns. Mm, and, and yeah. if, you don't, if you don't leach acorns, you remove the tannins. Um, then they will rob nutrients from your body. They they will bind to proteins in your digestive tract and remove them from you. Wow! <laughs> they're, they're not they're not above doing that. Um, and, and you know, our our garden variety foods are also like this. We've we've just got cultural methods of dealing with it. Um, so yeah, there, there there are root vegetables like water leaf. Definitely cook that one. Uh, the biscuit root, various Ooh. Lomatium species. That was one we looked at during the course. Yeah, many of those are good to eat raw, but they're they're a lot they're a lot better tasting and more nutritious cooked. Uh, and you know, where, whereas. Some vegetables you, you you might want to eat raw so as not to not to adulterate the vitamins. Um, 
let's say you just want to obtain minerals from your food, then then you could even burn it. <laughs> there's there's a a salt substitute made from the the burnt leaves of coltsfoot. No way. That I'm I'm fascinated in, and and basically what you're doing, like like wood ash, is just minerals. It's all a calcium and magnesium and probably some sodium that's uh, in a plant. So when you when you burn a plant to ash, you're you're uh, burning away everything but the minerals, and and that's an extreme example of processing. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I had no idea. So they were literally. Some could say that they might have been getting salt that way. I can't figure out if if this is a an indigenous hunter gatherer tactic or or if it's a homesteader thing. Mm. Um, either is possible. There were indigenous salt industries, so who knows? Well, what about preservation? You know, we talked about drying, um, but do you you touched about some other things during the uh, course. For example, you said that um, the service berry cakes or just fruit cakes in general might have been stored in fat. Yeah, well, with, with pemmican, that was one approach to preservation, was using fat to keep food out of the air. So pemmican, you're also eating the fat. It would, it would be like eating the Ziploc bag. It's an edible Ziploc <laughs> bag. I like that. Um, we put our pemmican into glass jars. That's a fine way to keep it. Uh, you can also put pemmican in a Ziploc bag, or you can put it uh, in, a, in a casing made from intestines, mm. which is a common way to do it. Um, so or, or pottery. The air is really a huge issue. Yeah, air air works on fat in a way that makes it rancid. Like, uh, have you ever used boiled linseed oil? If I have, it's it's been a while. I know it goes rancid fast. There's a lot of omega-6s in there that are not super stable. Yeah. Boiled linseed oil is is oil that's, that's been oxidized and made tacky so that it sticks to, to wood and, and other things you might paint it with. So if you want to oil wood to preserve it, use boiled linseed oil because it's tacky. Huh. But that same tackiness is rancidity. Uh, it's, it's oxidized fat, and it's terrible for you. And it, it happens to be uh, similar to hydrogenated oil. Margarine. Which, which is another fat made tacky through oxidization. So if, if you're using wild fats, it would be a shame to basically hydrogenate them by, by allowing them to be exposed to air or, or water or uh, kind of impurities in the fat. That's what fat rendering is about. It's it's about preparing the fat to be you know stored away from air. Are there any other processing methods that you've learned in the past that where, you, where you're like, wow, this is kind of crazy? Um... Hmm. I I really like uh, storing my my roadkill because I live without refrigeration in a oh, salt yeah. brine. So 
sometimes when I get roadkill and it's not cool enough out to just hang it when when I when I can't eat it all before it goes bad, I I cube it and dunk it in salt brine. So I just I keep a a sealed bucket on the floor of my shelter and um you can you can fish this the salted pieces out and you can either use them as they are and and make the soup salty or you can rinse them first so you just soak them in water for a period of time and and then uh dump that rinse water off you like to make soup out of your roadkill i make a lot of things out of roadkill Oh, we should definitely get into that in a bit. Uh, I definitely want to hear about your roadkill adventures. Uh, I think you said also like people might have used, like stored apples in water buckets or something like that. Oh, yeah. That's, that's another fantastic preservation option. So, so say you've got a food that has a lot of natural acidity. Um, you can find wild, or not, not wild, but, but ornamental crab apples in parks. That, that just hang on the bush through the winter because they're so damn acidic. And that's kind of an adaptation. So so probably one of the reasons that, that plants contain a lot of ascorbic acid or vitamin C is, is so that they are persistently available to animals over the winter for dispersal. Really? Because the, the, the plant wants to be dispersed right it wants its fruits to be eaten uh-huh. so if if they hang on the bush for longer than other plants that's an evolutionary advantage for them wow. and so there's there's a northwest coast method of preserving wild crab apples which are highly acidic in in water it, it just keeps keeps the temperature moderated and it keeps the air out of them so their their natural acidity goes further it's it's uh, almost like pickling, but without salt. Fascinating. So you really want acidic fruits for this kind of preservation, I guess. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to think of other examples. I I think the only fruits that come to mind of of similar acidity levels might be sea berries and things like that. Those are incredibly tart. Maybe cranberries. Cranberries, yeah, easy, easily stored in water. Um, a, a buddy of mine stored some that way for months. Interesting. Well, I want to switch gear quick to some starches, or at least we can talk about one. Because the one you, I think you said to me the other day, if you could find one starchy root, it would be the yellow parsnips, right? And we have a ton of that out where I'm at in La Crosse, the Driftless region, and. It's along, grows all along the trout streams, and uh, I had no idea, but this is the same exact parsnip that we find in the grocery stores. Yes. Sam Thayer makes that very clear in his, his treatment of the parsnip. And is that, you know, did, did, there are signs all around these trout streams that you should not touch these plants because you can get a reaction something like you know poison ivy or i guess it makes you really sensitive to the sun you get scarred and and all that how do you avoid all that well one should understand that 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 hazard of working with parsnips 
is is kind of widespread across the carrot family where um both the native and the exotic cow parsnips uh will give people a similar reaction and and i i almost said that it was a defense but i'm actually not sure if if that's an evolved defense or if it's just this random reaction that people have to it i'm not sure um so it's not that weird and another thing to note about it is that these reactions only occur when you expose your bare skin to the juice of the plant and if you're experienced at moving through your environment you're not you're not breaking a lot of plants to the point where they spatter on you. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> like, uh, and shit, I mean, I, I eat thistles. Uh, I eat stinging nettles. Uh, I, I eat a lot of plants that, that are, are defended. And, and those, those defenses speak to their palatability. They, they know to defend themselves because they're hot shit. They're, they're good. Like they, uh, they've got something to protect. So I, I think, I think parsnips, uh, to reiterate what Sam Thayer says about them, they are the same as garden parsnips. They are the same species. Garden parsnips will also cause the same reaction. Uh, but most people don't worry about it. And I, I think maybe one reason that, that people are more worried about wild parsnips is that uh wild parsnips are allowed to grow into their second year form mm. and send up a big seed stock and they're they're a lot more biomassive at that point and a lot more likely to to uh get trampled and spatter you <laughs> so basically avoid the leaves to stalk the uso is that would that be considered a USO? <laughs> oh yeah, storage organ. underground storage organ. That is safe That's to touch want. and eat. Yeah. Yep. Just just don't break the plant or wear gloves. You know, wear a long sleeve shirt. And you said that's like a highly calorically and carbohydrate rich wild food, right? Yeah. You know, I, I saw a chart of common garden vegetables ranked by their caloric value, and and I think parsnips ranked just under potatoes. Interesting for for root vegetables, and as a botanist, I take that with a grain of salt because there are a fantastic variety of calorie dense foods that we aren't necessarily familiar with growing in our gardens. But uh, the fact that the parsnips are so nutritious and are absolutely rampant in the Midwest—I mean, I can't believe it when I go over there. The highway sides it is covered in parsnips. Yeah. Well, when you come out to visit me, which I hope you do, we're going to go get a big old haul oh my and God. do some trout fishing. <laughs> if I lived over there, I, w- I would take a trash can and bury it. Oh. And then um, every winter or every kind of late fall, as late as the soil could be worked, because parsnips improve in flavor when subject to a hard freeze. Oh, so you would, you would de- uh, bury them in there. Yeah, yeah, just just um just bury like parsnips in sand or parsnips in sawdust and that way they'll they'll um kind of ride the temperature of the earth and you wouldn't even need a root cellar or even a lot of storage space in your kitchen you could 
um, keep the parsnips in your yard or in your garden or in some uh, secret stash in no man's land. That's such a cool idea. Maybe I'll try that. So what are some survival foods for hunters, you know, during the fall or winter season? Because uh, during the course, he talked about eating pine bark. Can you touch on that a little bit? I think that would be cool to hear. Yeah. I, I teach these classes for the hunting school and recognizing that the environments where most of these people are going to be hunting aren't necessarily wild food meccas. These are kind of high mountain zones, the kind of place where you'd hunt elk and mule deer. And uh, they aren't necessarily the, the fertile open clearings in the valley bottoms where you could find a ton of wild food. But what you have got a lot of up there are conifer trees. And conifer trees have some tricks up their sleeves in terms of food. So if, if you can recognize a true pine, and uh, there, there are a diversity of conifers in this region, and not all of them are actually pines, uh, then, then you can eat different kinds of pine bark. When, when our group was out, we sampled the lodgepole pine bark, and uh, al although its its texture is is kind of a kind of a I don't, it's intimidating. <laughs> I, I once described to someone that it was it was chewy, more chewy than swallowy. Yeah, it was definitely chewy. Yeah, but it it tastes it tasted good at this time of year. Uh, say say May June, I guess even on now into July, it accumulates a lot of sugars. I mean, there, there's a reason that porcupines and beavers specialize in eating bark. But but what you're after is the inner bark, and during the spring it can be easily peeled away from the stem. What is that called? The cadmium? Or cadmium? The, the cambium, cambium, I believe. Yeah. I'm terrible at pronouncing words, but I think cambium is the correct pronunciation. Yeah, you attain the cambium. So so say in the winter you're stranded somewhere, uh, you would not be able to peel the cambium from the wood. You would need to scrape off the outer bark first using a hatchet or something. and And then when you could see the cambium then scrape it off of the wood because everything would be kind of stuck together at that time of year and uh one 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 method it was it was a method of of the medieval peasantry of the far north was, was to dry and, and and pulverize pine bark and and uh, add it to flour it was a way of stretching out their flour and I haven't, I haven't tried it. I, I think that'd be fantastic because it's it's kind of the fibrousness of the pine bark that that makes it less palatable, and, and that you wouldn't necessarily have time to do that in a survival situation. But but you could slice it against the grain. I've tried boiling it. I don't really recommend boiling it. It doesn't make it any softer. It just makes it slimy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it tasted really good, and I love that story about you know how they how they uh, used it in medieval times. I think you said in like Lapland or something like that is where they did that. 
it's so, so cool how people, you know, I've just figured this stuff out. So what else would there be? Is there any other thing that pops to mind, like a significant plant that hunters might use in a survival situation like that? Yeah, another thing we looked at as a group uh, was, was the black tree lichen. Oh, yeah. The the inland northwest may be unique in the world for having a kind of highly developed lichen food culture. Uh, there must be other regions in the world where people use lichen for food, but uh, they're not they're not easily found in the literature for me so far. I saw a great documentary about the snub-nosed monkeys of Tibet that eat a lot of lichen, so maybe there's a primate analog for this. Uh, but on the plateau, uh, lichen was an important winter food, uh, particularly this this black tree lichen species. It was harvested using um, a pole with a hook on it, or um, you can you can fall a whole tree that's got a lot of lichen on it. Uh, and then it's it's high in vulpinic acid, so it, it needs to be leached in moving water or in a lake, and that will tame the acid down. And once it's soaked, uh, it was customarily baked into a pudding. So you go from a, a soggy fibrous mass to a uh, a, a pudding-like mass. And as an American, my experience of pudding is like like jello pudding, right? Yeah. Like Bill Cosby. And it is, it's kind of like that. Uh, and it's not unpleasant tasting. It's, 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 it tastes like it's full of carbs with maybe a mild licorice flavor. Mm. And, uh, Indigenous folks would bake it with lichen. I mean, you can also, after it's baked, dry it into a jerky-like product. So this is pretty versatile. Um, I mean, we we tried it, and you know, just the lichen by itself, and uh, I think we just rolled it up into little balls and just started chewing on it, and it, yeah, it was surprisingly good. But it's just weird. I you know, I've been. It's the first time I've been seeing all this lichen on pines, and uh, I would have never thought that that was edible, ever. <laughs> but hey. Well, look at the browse line. Yeah. You can, you got a very distinct browse line in the forest around here because the deer and the elk and most of the undulates are cleaning up any lichen they can reach. Interesting. So, you know, setting out to learn a new edible species or finding a new edible species you do a lot of scouting for wild food how do you go about that because you know that that's something i you know i i read these books i find i mark all these species i want to learn about but i still kind of i think going out there and then really scouting for them is is, is kind of a, the next step that's that might be hard for some people to take but what's your thought process on something like that how do you really zero in on an area well, plants are weird. They are really weird. They will make you question your your objective view of reality. So we're most of the time in autopilot where where we're seeing the landscape around us and we think we know what we're seeing, but really we don't. 
This is my experience with plants. So you can look at the same mountain day after day for years and until you are are inspired to key in to some particular detail, you may never notice that it is absolutely covered in uh, an important food plant. Um, I was blind to camas for about a decade. I couldn't find it. I just didn't get it. <laughs> I really wanted to find it. And then through through persistence and, and, and kind of a, a dedicated openness, <laughs> like I, to, to be ready to see things that you haven't seen yet, uh, I, I finally recognized its habitat and now I see it everywhere. Uh, and, and just when I was working in Southern Oregon, I, I learned species down there, apparently for the first time, uh, that I thought were only there, and then I found them up here when I came back, having never seen them before, so I thought. So, um, yeah, as a rule, just, just be be committed to see what you haven't seen before. Really look. Not many people really look. Most people to see a wall of green. Yeah, you can say that again. That's what it seems like to me. You know, I'm only two or three years into this whole foraging thing, and um, it was really interesting during the course because you pointed out all these different habitats, and that was the first time I really, you know, it clicked for me. Okay, this is what I need to be looking for. I need to be looking for, if I have a wild food species, I should probably be reading up on the habitat it grows in, and I should probably look at other plants that it's associated with. That might also probably help, right? Yes. Well, so you may, you may already know what it is you're hoping to find. Um, in that case, you might learn uh, what forest type it's associated with, for instance. Or, or, or kind of in, in the West, where, where the Forest Service has a lot of holdings, there are these um, plant association types that are, that are kind of well-established by academia and the Forest Service where uh, certain plants are known to occur with certain associations of trees and shrubs. So the, the people who devise these plant associations uh, usually choose one or two dominant species within those associations to look out for to find the other ones. Mm. Um, and, and that's, that's a, a pretty good technique for, for kind of figuring out habitat types. But, it, but as you saw with, with the Yampa that we, we collected, uh, sometimes you're in the right habitat type and you just don't find it. Yeah. It's just randomly not there. Uh, in, in which case you just need to cover a lot of ground and I attribute covering ground to most of what I know about plants. Just cover mile, mileage. Boots in the ground. Get in the thicket. <laughs> yeah, I mean, walk off the trail. Like, just see a lot of things. Like, you don't know 
what the normal is or what the patterns are and, and until you've seen a million variations of a plant. I think that's very true. Like this year, um, I spend a lot more time in the spring foraging than usual. I would go out, you know, every couple of days and I, I, I knew where some of the plants were that I was hoping to gather and, you know, they just weren't at the at the point of gathering yet um, in their development. But for the first time, I really started to realize all the different plants around it and, and how these plants can change in just a couple of days. So I think what you're saying about just be, being a conscious observer and also participant and getting out there, that, that's probably super important of just mastering this whole foraging thing and especially the, the species you're really trying to go after. Yeah, I uh, I worked for this wilderness therapy program where where we hiked youth groups all over this this hundred square mile uh, Great Basin Desert Valley, and at first glance, it is some of the most monotonous country that you've ever seen. <laughs> it's it's just miles of sagebrush. Um, but when when I did that. I was committed to observing as much detail as I could. And, and, and the more I looked and the more mileage I covered and, and the more uh, subtle patterns I observed, the, the more rich that environment seemed to me. And, and I started to notice things like jackrabbit browsing where I could identify what the jackrabbits were using at particular times of year. Wow. And I found... Um, just startling uh, kind of kind of like like things that were out of place, like, oh my God, how is this thing right here? Um, you know so so don't go to the national park go go to your local railroad track, go to the empty lot, uh, really look at what's there. Things don't have to be scenic to contain a lot of beautiful information. Like um, when we did the foraging class, I mean, I kind of winced in a way, but I was also kind of happy that often we were having to talk over highway noise. Yeah. Or, you know, look at really obnoxious, you know, redneck camps where people had shot up bottles and stuff like that. That's that's the world, you know. That's that's the soup that we're in. Food is all around you. Yeah, I love that. Is that sagebrush edible? By the way, there's <laughs> just so oh. much of it. I mean, it's good jackrabbit forage in the winter. <laughs> is, is there a wild sage that you can get around here? Because my friend brought me some back from the Bighorns. Hmm. I don't know what it was. I've been using it to cook. Uh, I I figured it might have been the sagebrush, but I don't know. Well, culinary sage is is a salvia. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of salvias in the world. Most of them are really fragrant. Um, we don't have many wild salvias up this way. Uh, chia is a salvia. Uh, but up here, what we do have are a lot of artemisias related to sagebrush. One of our native Artemisias 
is tarragon. Tarragon is actually a circumboreal native. It's native to the entire northern hemisphere. And that's also a great cooking herb. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out how to bring out its best flavor. It doesn't seem as strong as garden-grown tarragon for whatever reason. But it's got some stuff going on. And I've been using other artemisias lately to fumigate my car and my sleeping bag and my boots. (laughs) because they're strongly antibacterial. Wow. And that's their adaptation for killing the, the gut flora of herbivores so that they avoid being eaten. Interesting. So don't, don't eat the sagebrush? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I spent a lot of time around sagebrush, and a lot of people develop uh, contact dermatitis. Oh, that's not good. After a lot of sagebrush exposure. So Interesting. it wants to be left alone. Well, what are some of the best internet resources for learning about plants and, you know, seeing if they have a cultural use or if they're edible and all that? Well, there's, there's a, it's an acronym, B-R-I-T, and the, the Brit Ethnobotany Database that's available online. Um, it's really simple. It, it will tell you, like, such and such group use such and such plant for food, medicine, uh, tools, forage, what have you. And it's, it's not like a rich source of information. It's, it's not like sitting down with an experienced elder. Um, but, but it will give you like kind of a, a ballpark understanding of what a plant's potential may be or, or what uh, the, the potential of a, of a genus of plants may be. So I think that's, that's, that's a really cool thing that we have available to us. And again, that's, that's indigenous knowledge. That's, that's the knowledge of a people that our culture does not have a very great relationship with. Our culture has been very abusive to them, so we need to show due respect and... And um, you know, use use that information with with care. And there's another database called the Plants for a Future database. And I may be wading into some hotly contending like internet politics over this because um, I think there there's more than one Plants for a Future database now. <laughs> but but it's it's this really trite kind of like like global resource uh devised to again like so is a plant edible what are what are the basics about its cultivation preparation and so forth what kinds of soils does it like and and that's an interesting global one um, but but really you you're not going to beat say quality ethnographic information information from people who rely on plants for subsistence and and that's often in the in the form of an academic work uh or you know if if you're if you're around subsistence people like not necessarily indigenous people but but rural people who spend a lot of time working with wild plants like that's a fantastic source of info And, and then really rigorous 
wild food authors, which are rare. Yeah. <laughs> Sam Thayer, really rigorous wild food author. Very, yeah. He, he tests, he, he's behind everything that he asserts, and he very correctly points out that the vast majority of wild food literature is regurgitated. It's, it's just uh, wood lore <laughs> passed from book to book. Yeah, that's something I, I, that was interesting to read in, in his books for sure. And he's got three awesome books out there and even a DVD series to definitely check out. Man, well, we talked about a lot. I still have a little bit more I want to ask you before we go. Um, land management as a forager is something you touched on in the course. Can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah. It's... It's important now more than ever to be good land stewards, particularly if, if we're going to be, be relying on natural resources so directly as we are when we're foraging. And it's, it's, it's not an uncontroversial thing to do. Um, the planet is already very strained when we go into more wild, more um, less contaminated environments, and then we put additional stress on the resources by foraging, that's a sensitive issue. Um, and I, I think how we need to approach that as wild food people is, is to actually in, invest in wild landscapes making the land more wild than we found it. Um, investing in policies, cultural practices that promote and expand uh, wild food species and the species that go along with them. Um, most of our wild food species are very important to other animals as well. Bears, deer, and rodents. So, you know, the average forager is, is, is kind of a bohemian sort of person. They likely don't own a ton of land themselves. Um, but in the United States, we're, we're fortunate to have uh, public lands. And public lands are in, in desperate need of public stewardship. So one... One thing I did last year, I was I was really proud to be a part of, uh, was I, I took a a prescribed fire training, where I learned about prescribed fire and and I I helped do a prescribed burn on a wildlife area, and uh, fire ecology out west is so messed up right now. I can't stress enough how fire suppression has has altered these landscapes in a really scary and unprecedented way. Well, the wild native plants really rely on that greatly, right? Yeah. We, we, we saw the Sherman Creek wildlife area, which has some fantastic examples of, of prescribed fire. This is performed by the same program, and the natives are thriving in this situation. We saw a lot of service berries. We saw like a lot of native grasses and lupins and, and good good forbs. And, um, it's, it's, it's so important for... Uh, winter range for deer and elk that 
these these parklands be kept open and rich in understory plants. Anyway, uh, if even if you don't own land, and, and probably private ownership isn't even the best way to be a land steward. I mean, our predecessors managed land tribally to the extent that they managed it. They, they did it cooperatively. And, and we need to get over ourselves as rugged individualists who think we're going to change the world on our own 20 acres. <laughs> we need to manage land cooperatively and, and according to like community goals. Um, community forestry is a good example of this. Um, you know, private land preserves and, and the nature conservancy, they all need volunteers. They, they need out, people out there working on invasive species. You know, they need people out there monitoring threatened wildlife and, and doing research. And, um, you know, we need people addressing erosion on public lands. Uh, we need people checking in on um, destructive grazing practices and and uh, all of that, when, when we address those, those big issues, like fire, like fire suppression, flood suppression, on, on our public lands, that, that's the most bang for our buck in terms of uh, stewardship and, and stewarding wild food. Yeah, I love that. That's, you know, I think that's just a very important message to pass on to people getting into foraging or people that are already foraging and whatnot. And just really realizing that you're taking from this land, but, you know, hunter-gatherers, I believe, from from what I've learned, they were really, you know, cultivating it in a way also to help some of these native plants thrive and whatnot. So... You know, you said you, you've always wanted to be a hunter-gatherer, but from talking to you, I get more the sense that you're more so a gatherer of wild plants than a hunter of animals. <laughs> but you did mention harvesting roadkill at the beginning, and you told me you've, you've been doing a lot of that. That's the last thing I want to hear about. How do you go about it? You know, what are some of the things you're looking out for when you're harvesting roadkill to see if the animal is safe to eat or... Obviously, you know, it's a de- definitely a personal kind of thing, but, uh, you know, everyone has a different confidence level or comfort level with taking roadkill. But what are some of the things you've you've noticed throughout the years to look for? Sure. Well, maybe the first thing to point out is, is that scavenging is, is a normal part of being human. Yes. I was reading about the Hadza hunter-gatherers, I think, they they obtain like like fifteen percent of the meat they bring in by stealing it from other predators. Really? Yeah, it's it's a significant amount of their food. I've actually seen this crazy video where, <laughs> where these two two African men, you know, hunt. They clearly some indigenous people. There's a cheetah with the freaking kill and they're just throwing rocks at it and all they have is a stick you know and they're scaring this huge cat away to get to that meat yeah so so there's there's some background with with humans and scavenging and uh roads in this country kill 11 vertebrates a second wow now that's a stat 
Uh, that is a lot of animal life. Yeah. Going down the tubes. Um, you know, I, I wonder how many, how many times the, the, the animal biomass of Yellowstone that is annually. Or, it's a lot of, it's a lot of animals. It, it'd be, a, it'd be a shame if that went to waste. Which uh, it does, a lot of it. Yeah, and it's it's like I I have my criticisms of of auto culture certainly, but but the way things are, uh, this is our major opportunity to be scavengers, and there are certainly health risks. There are health risks with hunting, you know, as as we discussed with that that ground squirrel that we processed. Uh, but but like any any food activity like there there are guidelines and and ways to approach it that are safer than other ways so i i I like to make sure the roadkill is pretty fresh when i harvest it and and another thing is to make sure that it is legal uh i think in, in many states it is legal now washington oregon idaho wisconsin it is wisconsin's legal but if it's not uh Please promote to get the policy changed in your state. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I like to m- make sure that it's fresh. And so, what does that mean, fresh? Freshness, like like how long ago the kill was, and how much opportunity the animals had to break down, mm-hmm. are going to impact the flavor. First of all, uh, a roadkill that's that's allowed to just have its blood sit in it. So to say the blood begins to coagulate in the muscle tissue, mm. uh, it's going to make it gross. Yeah. It's, it's going to make it gross because, because coagulated blood doesn't taste so great to begin with, but it's also, uh, it's really nutrient rich. And so, um, bacteria that, that create bad odors, or have a better chance to proliferate if, if there's a lot of blood in the meat. And that's that's one reason that when we uh, slaughter an animal, we, we bleed it. Ah. Uh, I and, know and, a, that. and a lot of roadkill is not well bled. You're kind of fortunate, actually, if, if it has like a, a, a big wound in it and its blood is able to leave the body. Um. Another thing that happens with a roadkill is is that the longer it sits, particularly in the heat, the uh, the guts begin to bloat. So the the gas in the guts may not be able to leave, and the entire uh, abdomen of the animal swells, and its its legs will splay apart. Uh, and that that gas that does that will will creep out into the carcass and contaminate the meat with a fart smell. Yeah. And that's not great. No, not at all. <laughs> um, but it's, it's those processes that, it, that impact the flavor that, that initiate the processes that can lead to the meat being green, for instance, uh, which will potentially make you sick. Uh, but, but, you know, depending on who's eating it, like, like green meat is probably safer than, say, salmonella yeah. that's in the industrial food supply. Uh, but the, the, the big risk to watch out for are the same risks that 
you would want to be aware of during hunting, like you you wouldn't want to get worms, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you would not want to get ticks that carry Lyme's disease. That's probably actually less of a risk in a roadkill animal. Uh, there are other risks. I'm I'm not a scholar of the risks of roadkill consumption, but um, I've been to the say the rabbit stick rendezvous and other primitive skills rendezvous where that they're actually experienced teachers who've who've researched this in detail and and will give you a class about the hazards of roadkill. I need that for sure. <laughs> but here's the thing in Washington. If if you take any part of it, you have to take the whole damn thing. I think it's the same in Wisconsin, actually. Yeah. So so when I salvage, sometimes it takes kind of an autopsy to determine if you've got anything good to eat. But you, you just take the whole thing anyway and, and, you know, put the rest of it in your compost pile. But... Uh, if, if you cut it open and realize the meat is green, there there may be a quarter on there that's still okay to eat. And and say that you have some some bad odor from uh, the gut gases, you can actually like like soak that and and say just water or salt brine, and you can actually deal with that. So it's 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 more of a comfort issue than a safety issue, as far as I see it. But I'm 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 probably kind of cavalier, yeah. ogre-like about it. What about like signs? I mean, you you talked about about the bloating. You obviously don't want it to be super bloated. I know um, the eyes. You you don't want to be cloudy. You sometimes there's what I've seen before is that there's blood comes out of the snout, uh, the nose, and you can kind of see you know look at that blood, see if it's still runny, fresh, versus like you said, coagulated and dry. Um, is the hair an indicator? Yeah, you can try pulling the hair. Uh, I've eaten animals where the hair slips. That can happen pretty fast on a hot day. But it's one more indicator of how long the animal might have been there. And the, that time matters more when it's warm. Uh, in the in the winter, I might be comfortable salvaging an animal that's been there for three or four days. Like if it bled out well and if its guts weren't too smashed. Uh, but around here, that might mean it was frozen solid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I and and there there are the the processes of the other scavengers that indicate how long an animal might have been there. Like like around here, an animal's only going to make it half a day before the the magpies and ravens find the critter and just and just like eat their way in through the ass. That was kind of my next question. You know, I just recently, while I was here, I saw a roadkill that looked really fresh. I didn't see it the day before, so I stopped. It was still early in the day. I knew it was probably under 24 hours since it got hit. I dragged it for 150 yards. I opened up the back, the, like the, the back, uh, the skin. You know, obviously you said, you know, ideally I should have taken it home. Probably wasn't all super legal, but I wanted to take a look at the meat before making any further decisions and I found a bunch of bite marks uh. so I just kind of left it is that something you worry about when you see something like that I mean you're going to cook it you're not necessarily worried about bacteria in any other animal's mouth giving you a parasite or pathogen 
Uh, but it, it's just not a good sign in terms of how long the animal's been there. Yeah. And uh, another thing that's coming to mind is, is say you start to drag and the animal loses some blood and the blood smells bad. That's a clear no. Discard that. If the blood smells bad, you know that the blood and the meat has, has gone even worse and that the meat is likely to be really foul. Yeah. What about scat marks? You know, so all these deer, they'll be like dragged under the car for a bit. Do you just cut around that? Oh, bruising can be horrendous in a roadkill to the to the point where um, bruising, bruising attracts blood, right? Yeah. So bruised tissue has a lot of blood in it, and it'll go bad faster and taste bad. So I very often just, just discard any bruised tissue, and it's, it's really obvious once you get the hide off which of the quarters have been bruised. Um, the, the trauma in the animal can also rupture the guts and, and contaminate, say, the hindquarters or other parts. So that's, that's something that kind of experience and autopsy can teach you to the point where if, if you see an, an animal that's had a lot of trauma, you know it, it may not be worth it, except to extract maybe the back straps or the front quarters. Um, you just have to kind of investigate. Yeah, it's a lot of dissection. Yeah, it has to happen. Well, man, Kyle, I appreciate this so much. You know, you coming on the show, sharing your knowledge because you have so much. We almost did two hours. <laughs> How Whew. crazy is that? Uh, now I want I want a chance for you to like tell where people can find you online. You know, I don't know if you're if people can book you for foraging classes or whatnot. Um, but uh, do you have an Instagram? Do you have a website? And I'm, I'll be adding all of this to the podcast descriptions, the show notes, but maybe you can just rattle some of your stuff off. Uh, sure. It's, it's hard for me to maintain a serious web presence. Much of what I do on the internet is very tongue-in-cheek, uh, but I have got a, a more professional web page. And if, if you Google Resilience Land Care and my name, Kyle Chamberlain, uh, you can find my WordPress site and my contact info from there. Um, do have some avail- availability to do speaking events and classes, uh, but I stay pretty busy these days. Awesome. And on your website, you're also saying that you're trying to write a book. <laughs> I'm going to keep talking about that because I want you to write a book. <laughs> so if anyone out there wants to help fund this endeavor or maybe, you know, help out with the publishing, please do contact Kyle. That would be awesome because I think, uh, you know, it'd be cool to get your story out there and, um, and kind of have people learn more about your approach to, to all of this, to primitive skills and and wild food. And I think that would be an awesome addition to the literature overall. Man, well, like I said, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, hopefully we get to hang out in the future again. Yeah, thanks for the drink, Poldy. I look forward to exploring the Midwest. Yeah, like I said, uh, when you ever feel like coming out there, just send me a text and we'll see what we can do. We're going to get a truckload of parsnips. <laughs> That's what I want to see. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Later. Okay, I hope you all learned from Kyle. I surely did. 
and I hope to get him on the podcast again in the future to maybe talk about some more land management because that's something that you know I'm really trying to learn more about and I know a lot of you are too. Because let's face it, who doesn't want to turn their property into a wild garden or like a wild farm basically? So I really strive for a future where I have a property on which you know I have a sustainable population of wild plants because of me cultivating them and there's also a sustainable you know population of wild animals for me to hunt and at the same time I'm creating a habitat for those animals and plants to thrive in. So I'm really trying to have more people in the future on to talk about land management, you know, gardening even and agroforestry. You know, I think learning these skills and learning how to do all that and learning how to turn your property into a food haven, you know, be it wild foods or be it foods that you plant uh, in a garden or be it wild animals or animals you raise on a homestead. I mean, you know, all that having that knowledge is really going to bring us closer to a scenario where every year will be a year of plenty. And like I said, that is the big goal for me. And I hope that is the goal for you too. Enough talk for me. I know you guys are all waiting to hear who won the giveaway. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for all the support. I was amazed at how many of you entered in the giveaway. And I really, really appreciate all the great feedback you guys gave this podcast. But out of all of you who entered, only one listener was randomly picked to win the Beast Kitchen Cleaver. And the winner of this giveaway is Josh Holly. Congratulations, Josh. You won the awesome hand-forged Damascus Kitchen Cleaver. If you're listening to this right now, you can expect a DM from me on Instagram with further details. Again, congratulations. And I just want to read Josh's review on the podcast quick. He gave the podcast a five-star review, and his review goes, quote, Always searching for a new angle to look at natural foods, Poldy and well-known hunter and gatherer guests discuss food as we know it from a holistic health perspective. I found many new foods that support a healthy diet, ways to cook natural food sources to make them more palatable, and found ways to eliminate bad foods through his podcast. Much like the Meat Eater podcast, I eagerly look forward to each of Poldy's episodes as feeding my family the healthiest food possible is very important to me. Super valuable podcast that will make great use of your time. End quote. Thank you so much for those kind words, Josh. And I hope you can use this cleaver well with your family for your future foodie adventures. For those of you that participated and didn't win, I still really appreciate your support. And there will be more giveaways. I love giving back to this community, and I think on top of all the free content, giveaways are the way to do it going forward. All right, that's all I had for you this week. There are several cool episodes in the pipeline. I recently recorded a conversation with Zach Farrenbaugh from the Hunting Public YouTube channel. It's one of my absolute favorite hunting channels out there. The guys are super authentic, you know, down to earth honest people and they try to show you how you can hunt public lands you know with the cheapest gear possible basically and they do a really really good job so that was a really cool convo and i'm excited to share that with you guys but besides that one you know i have many other conversations scheduled so stay tuned you will hear from me again soon bye bye love you all and have an amazing rest of your week